0: The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. I invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, Chapter 11. This morning we'll give attention to Luke... Chapter Eleven, beginning in verse five through thirteen. As we uh, launch into Luke eleven, we find ourselves in the first two passages dealing with uh, the issue of prayer. And um, as I mentioned in the uh, announcements, uh, Kelly is was scheduled to preach this morning. He's been working on the first uh, five verses or first four verses of uh, Luke eleven. And uh, so we'll we'll uh, we'll sort of jump ahead this morning to verses five through thirteen, and then next Sunday morning, Lord willing, we'll just rewind back to verses one through four, and uh, we'll put it all together if that makes sense. So uh, jump on down to, to verse five, and that's where we'll pick up this morning. This is Jesus speaking, and he said to them, "Which of you?" Who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And he will answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend will give him a scorpion. If you then, who are evil, know how to do how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? It's the word of the Lord for us this morning. We'll be looking at these these two weeks at the issue of prayer. This is not something we've addressed in in recent days as we've made our way through. Uh, Luke's Gospel, uh, but it is an important topic. Prayer, when you and I think of this, uh, I think we can agree is one of the spiritual disciplines that is probably the most challenging to develop and be and remain consistent in in our lives. Prayer is a spiritual discipline that is utterly private. That is to say, nobody else knows if you pray or you don't pray. Nobody else knows if I pray or I don't pray. We could pray all the time, and no one would know apart from us and the Lord. We could pray never, and no one would know apart from us and the Lord. It's an incredibly private matter. And I think for most believers, at least most that I come into contact with, prayer is is challenging on a number of levels. Quite often we don't know how to pray. Quite frequently we don't know what to say. While we have plenty of words uh, to speak in nearly every other context of life, somehow when it comes time to pray, we run out of things to say relatively quickly. I think many struggle with attention span. We live, as we talked about last week, very busy and harried lives. We rarely take any time for solitude and thoughtfulness. We're, from the time we wake up to the time we go to sleep, we're running from here, there, and everywhere. Uh, times of solitude and times of not being busy are rarely built into our lives. And so in order to pray, you have to stop what you're doing, largely. If this is uh, apart from sort of casual prayer that just marks the, the daily grind of life... To, to pray and have time alone with God in significant portions uh, with any regularity, it requires some discipline in our lives to stop doing other things and give attention to that matter. And quite frequently, we just don't do that. And I think if we were to be honest, really, uh, beyond that, even at a deeper level, we struggle with prayer in other ways. We wonder, uh, is God really paying attention? Is He listening? Am I. Because at times it, it feels like our, my prayer is just hitting the ceiling and bouncing back in my face. Sometimes we pray for things and we don't see immediate answers to our prayer, particularly not in the way that we like, and we, we wonder, am I just wasting my time? Is there any reason for me to actually do this? Is God even listening? Is he even paying attention? Have you ever had that experience? You prayed and you just wondered, is God even listening or am I just talking? I read a story about Franklin Roosevelt, President Roosevelt, uh, at one point in his presidency had gotten kind of sick of public appearances where receiving lines would come by and and speak to him, uh, you know, one at a time. He began to believe that nobody paid attention to anything he was saying when when they came by and greeted him, so he decided to do an experiment on a particular day. And what he did, to each person who came down the line and shook his hand, he murmured, I murdered my grandmother last night. And he just waited to see if anybody was paying any attention. And just as he expected, guest after guest, in typical fashion, shook his hand, nodded their heads, and said things like, Marvelous, Mr. President, keep up the good work. God bless you, sir, and over and over and over, until at long last the ambassador from India comes along and simply leans in and says, I'm sure she had it coming, sir. (laughs) I can identify with the president. Sometimes we talk and we don't know if anybody's listening or paying attention. And I think it's true in prayer sometimes. So we wonder, what is it to do with this prayer? And then we have theological concerns and we start thinking about, well, God is sovereign and God is omniscient. And, and so how does praying fit in with all of those things? And so quite often we just don't pray. We just simply don't pray. And so this morning, our text leads us into this issue of prayer as does the, the sample prayer that the Lord gives the apostles there in the very beginning of the chapter, which we'll look at uh, again Next week, but I wanted to begin by just sort of answering some general questions about prayer before we sort of launch into the actual text this morning. we We need to get a definition for prayer. What is it? What exactly is prayer? Uh, it may be sort of elementary. Maybe you all understand prayer fully, but I, I run into all sorts of misconceptions of prayer in pastoral ministry. There are all kinds of understandings of what prayer actually is and how people approach it. Some people, have a conception of prayer as though it's a soda machine. That prayer is 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 when what we do when we want something. We want something from God, and He is our vending machine. So we, prayer is our putting our coins in the machine and throwing our request up to God and pushing the button, and we expect out to come whatever it is that we pushed a button for. Prayer is our means by which we get out of God whatever it is we want at a particular moment. Other people see prayer as just sort of a a, a reactive thing in our life that we do out of sheer panic when bad things happen, when we're desperate and we can't think of anything else to do. We look up to God and we, in panic, pray. It's sort of our life alert, panic button. Other people sort of approach prayer like it's a a magic charm. and They begin to think, well, if I don't pray, bad things are going to happen. Or they, they pray habitually in order for things bad not to happen some see prayer as sort of the genie in the bottle like a lad right you just rub the lamp when you need something and god pops out and, and he grants our wishes the biblical picture of prayer is so much more than any of those things that really to do an exhaustive look at this would take a couple of weeks but uh Suffice it to say, to to get a, a simple definition of prayer, let's just go back and bring this down to its most basic level. Clement of Alexandria, 3rd century, put it very, very simply and concisely when he says prayer is this. Prayer, he says, is conversation with God. At a most basic level, that's what prayer is. It is man conversing with God. It is us communicating with God and God communicating back to us Wayne Grudem gives a very, very similar definition. He says prayer is personal communication with God. So uh, Clement says it's conversation with God. Uh, Wayne Grudem says personal communication with God. I think Grudem gets that personal aspect to that. I think that's an important piece of It, it is a personal thing that we do. Prayer is, is the means by which we communicate with God a variety of things, whatever's going on in our life, the Psalms being sort of a, a template for that. Expressing our emotions, our thoughts, our desires, our needs, our wishes. Declaring our our gratitude and thanksgiving to him for who he is. It's a way by which we glorify him personally through words. And it is also the means or a means by which he communicates to us through his spirit. God has multiple means of communicating with us. Primarily through his word, but through his spirit, through other people through his church, we have one means of communicating with him, and that's through prayer. An author author by the name of Rosalind Rinker says this, says prayer is dialogue between two persons who love each other. It's an interesting definition of prayer. She means certainly in her context, in the the broader context of her definition between God and man. But she does capture this idea that prayer is something that is a part of a personal relationship where love exists on both ends of the equation. It is people who love God communicating with a God who loves them. So prayer is not just sort of a a religious speech that we give to a divine audience. It's not a, a groveling sort of petition to some arbitrary master. Prayer is not sort of vague, general thoughts directed out into outer space to no one in particular. It is a particular means by which people who love God relate and communicate with him and allow him to relate and communicate with them. The Bible calls us really front to back to pray just a quick survey in the New Testament, Romans twelve twelve, we see this. Paul writes, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. In Ephesians 6, 18, we're told to be praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and all supplication. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 17, Paul writes, we're to pray without ceasing. And prayer is to be like breathing in our life a normal, regular thing. Colossians chapter four, verse two, continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. And while the Bible calls us time and time again to be people of prayer, it does so against a backdrop of a God who is both omniscient and Sovereign. We looked at this really just a few weeks ago when we were looking at the doctrine of election, the idea that God is omniscient, that is to say he knows everything. So in prayer, I'm not primarily introducing any new information to God. So I pray, I'm not telling God things he doesn't already know because he already knows everything. So prayer isn't a means by which I notify God about things that are happening. He's never surprised by any circumstances, so it's not like I need to give him a heads up of what's coming, So at some level, prayer isn't about informing God about anything. He's omniscient. He knows everything. Beyond that, he's sovereign. We saw that very clearly. He's in complete control of everything. Isaiah 14, we looked at a couple of weeks ago, verse 26 and following. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? Like, who can change God? He does whatever he wants. And he's utterly sovereign. Proverbs 19, 21, many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's ultimately the the Lord's purpose that prevails. So how do we make sense of this? The Bible calls us to pray, and yet, at the same time, the Bible declares the one to whom we pray is sovereign and omniscient. So why should we do such a thing? If in prayer we're not telling God things that he doesn't already know, and if his sovereign will is already established, then why do we do this exercise? Well, there's some mystery involved in this, but there are some truths that we know. Some truths we know are this. God can, he can do things on his own, and he does it all the time. God can work, and he can move completely without us, and he does so all the time God can and does work without us praying in our lives and for our benefit all the time and yet over and over the Bible calls us to pray we're to pray for those who persecute us we're to pray at all times and not lose heart we're to pray that we might not enter into temptation we're to pray for each other we're to pray in suffering we're to pray for the sick we're to pray and for for good health and for prosperity we're to pray that the eyes of our hearts might be enlightened, and on and on and on again. So I do that. Well, I give you just a couple of quick thoughts on that issue. Again, we could explore that for an entire Sunday morning. Let me say a few things to that. First, prayer does have an effect. The Bible is crystal clear about this. God is responsive to our prayers, and prayer does have an effect. Numerous examples we could cite in the Bible of that. Numbers chapter eleven. If we want to just start toward the beginning of the Bible, verses 1 and 2. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord, and when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled, and the fire of the Lord burned down among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. Man, that's frightening, isn't it? Wouldn't it be all, I mean, aren't you glad God doesn't operate like that all the time, that every time you grumble and complain, he doesn't just rain fire down and fry people? That's what happened. But the people therefore cried out to Moses. And Moses prayed to the Lord and the fire died out. Moses prayed, God responded. 2 Kings chapter 6 verse 18. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and he said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. Elisha prayed and God responded. In Joshua chapter 10, Joshua prays that, that, and, and the sun stands still and the moon stops. And over and over again, we can point to various pieces and passages and examples in Scripture where people prayed and God responds. So however we conceive of sovereignty and omniscience, we have to balance that with the reality the Bible declares over and over by example, one after the other, that prayer has a real effect and God responds to prayer. In fact, James chapter four, verse two says very directly, you do not have. Why? Because you don't ask. There are things that God would deliver to you that you do not have. And the simple reason you do not have them is because you never stop and ask for them. Were you to ask, God would deliver. So prayer matters and God responds to us in prayer. It's undeniable. Beyond that, I would say this, God does important work in us as we spend time in prayer. Prayer isn't just about getting what we want. There's a relational part to prayer where we are growing in our intimacy and relationship with him and as we pray and as we pray over periods of time, God is doing important things in us through that interchange. He's strengthening our faith. He strengthens our trust in him. He develops an intimacy in the relationship between us that that really doesn't come any other way than through prayer. Communication is key to intimacy and relationship. Every every married couple understands this, how the relationship ebbs and flows quite often based on how we're communicating with one another. I can know all kinds of things about my wife, and she can know all kinds of things about me, and we could describe each the other person to somebody else, but if we never actually talk to one another and communicate with one another, the relationship between the two of us is not growing and intimate. It grows cold. And I suspect that every married couple in the room understands that. When we're communicating the best, the intimacy in our relationship is the best. When we're communicating the least, the relationship grows distant and cold. And so as we pray, God is doing important things in us. He's strengthening our faith and trust in him. He's developing intimacy in our relationship. And he's aligning our will with his will. Sometimes we come to God in prayer uh, with a will that is outside of his. And so God, through the interchange of prayer, uses that exercise as a means by which he aligns our will underneath his. He pulls us into line with his desire and his will. E. Stanley Jones says this, he says, prayer is surrender. It's surrender to the will of God in cooperation with that will. If I throw out a boat hook from the boat and I catch hold of the shore and I pull, do I pull the shore to me or do I pull myself to the shore? Prayer is not so much pulling God to my will, but the aligning of my will to the will of God. So there's a piece, at least of that, that's going on in the midst of prayer. So God's doing important work in us as we pray, another reason why prayer is important. And another thing I would say to this question of why do we pray is even our prayers are a very important part of the sovereign will of God. God, in his sovereignty, doesn't just ordain how things will end up, he ordains the means by which those things end up as well. It's not just the ends, but the means that he ordains, including our prayers, How all that completely fleshes out, I don't fully understand. There's mystery involved. But even our prayers are part of his sovereign will. So there's a lot of good reasons for us to be praying. And and beyond that, before we jump to the text, I want to say one other thing. Every one of us in this room has equal access to God in prayer. You realize that, right? Like, I don't have any advantage over you. And nobody else has an advantage over you either. We all have equal access to God in prayer. I find quite frequently that sometimes folks forget this. They begin to believe that somehow certain people have better access to God in prayer than they do. And therefore, they need to go seek out that person to pray on their behalf because someone else has better access than they do. Sometimes that's because of really bad things that are coming out of sort of the modern Christian movement. Like uh, a flyer that I got several years ago. It was a fascinating flyer. Uh, it was so fascinating that I, that I kept the information from it. Because in this flyer, uh, it was a, a, someone purporting to be a Christian minister telling me that if I would uh, simply write a check and send it into his ministry uh, with my prayer needs, then he and his team of, of faithful followers would pray over some pieces of cloth for my need, and then they would mail me the cloth. In the mail, and when I got that and touched the cloth, that I would find answers for my prayer. It was a fascinating flyer. Fascinating in all of its detail. In particular, it said, here are some suggestions for you. If you have cancer and you need cancer prayer and a, a cancer a miracle prayer cloth, then you, you you send a certain amount of a gift and you send it, and amazing things will happen when you get your cancer prayer cloth back. If you need a financial miracle or miracles of provision or supernatural debt cancellation and miracle money, this is what the writer says. He says, just like the above, that's the cancer prayer, this has had the same requirements that only special prayers will go forth on your behalf regard to finances. The first church I ever went to, he said, I had an old prophet prophesy that my right hand would be a miracle healing hand and my left hand would be my miracle money hand. Apparently, he says, the prophet was right. So if you need that, he'll pray with his miracle money hand. Didn't stop there. If you need creative miracles, you can get those too. He says this one's for people that need fingers, toes, limbs, organs grown out, or new ones replaced. Or if you have dental miracles, I'm telling you, it's very specific. If you need... If you have problems with your teeth, You need dental miracles, mouth or jaw, or just have bad teeth that need to be healed or replaced, this is the special prayer for you. I've seen silver and gold crowns, some with crosses and doves on them. Imagine that. I've been talking to people and seeing them appear before my eyes. Oh, and this is the one that got me. All I know is God says gold crowns are laid up for us. And he seems to put gold crowns on teeth as well. My favorite on the whole flyer was this one. If you needed the miracle of instant and constant weight loss, there's a special prayer for that one too. And this is what he writes. You're going to think I make this up. I couldn't make this up. He says, All I can say is this works, and the rest is up to God. The Bible says, Lay aside every weight. This came to me as a specific word from God to pray for people lay aside every weight. And then he says, honest to goodness, many slips fell to the ground after this prayer. Particularly, I suppose he's praying this primarily for ladies. I don't know very many men that wear slips, but can you believe that nonsense? We wonder why people don't have any idea what prayer is. You see, that kind of garbage from scam people like that. But scams like that give the impression that some people have special access to prayer and that some people have special anointings for prayer. And clearly, you know that when you pray for people, you don't go up to them and pray for weight loss and, you know, watch things happen. You know that when you pray for people, you don't see limbs grow out. And so when this individual says that they do, it leads people to believe that they don't have the same kind of access that anyone else. And it's ridiculous. The Bible nowhere substantiates that kind of a notion. The priesthood of believers is a a, a basic Protestant doctrinal piece that understands that when Christ died on the cross and the the, the veil was ripped from top to bottom, it was a very clear indication that people have access to to God through Christ, whoever you are, wherever you are. You don't need a priest, you don't need a pope, you don't need some miracle-working guy selling cloths. You can approach God yourself with boldness and confidence and authority by the blood of Christ. It's fine to ask other believers to join you in praying, but you can pray. You can pray as well as anyone else can pray. You have all the access to God that I have, If that's true, then how should we pray? How should we pray? What should prayer look like coming from us? Well, the first four verses give us a model prayer, and we'll see some of the how next week. But verses five through 13 sort of give us a few sort of additional pieces to answer the question of the how of prayer. If we're called to pray, If our prayers are beneficial in a variety of different ways, if God uses our prayer in a lot of different ways, if our prayer fits along with God's sovereignty and omniscience, then how are we to go about it? What should be the characteristics that mark our prayer? Well, we get a few of these in this brief section beginning uh, in verse 5. And the first one, we'll just sort of bullet point them like this. Our praying should communicate dependence. I think it's the first thing we see in this part. There's all three points right there if you want to just write them down now. Our praying should communicate dependence. Jesus introduces a very tricky situation here to the crowd to whom he's speaking. He says, which of you has a friend? Go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, let me me three loaves for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. Now Jesus introduces a very tricky situation into the context of those who are listening that gets lost on us a bit because of history and time that's passed and the cultural differences between our culture and the first century. But the the setting is this. A, a, a friend has showed up at midnight, unannounced, and has knocked on the door. And there you are. You get a knock on your door, you answer it, your friend is there. Midnight. That wasn't altogether unusual because people quite frequently at the time traveled at nighttime. It's in incredibly hot in that part of the world and in the daytime, so uh, quite frequently people would travel at night. And so when traveling at night, they would at some point get tired. They would uh, not have reliable hotels to stay in. They can't just pull up at the local Marriott or Hilton and get a room. So they would stop over at somebody's house. It was very common. All travelers did this. And as a part of the culture, you expected that. You needed that when you traveled, and so you were expected. It was, in fact, your holy duty to offer that to others who came knocking on your door. It wasn't just something that you may or may not do if you felt like it. It was something you were obligated to do, to provide hospitality to travelers who come to your door in the night. And when they arrived, they were typically hungry from from traveling and typically... You didn't have a lot of notice. People didn't have cell phone to pick it up and give you a call and say, I'm heading to your house. I'll be there in you know 15 minutes. You just wake up to a knock at the door and there's somebody, a traveler. And that's the scenario Jesus sets up here. In this particular scenario, though, you've got a bigger problem than that. It's not just that they showed up in the middle of the night and you haven't had notice, but the problem is immediately your mind begins to race and you know there's no bread in the cupboard. You know that it is your your uh, your cultural responsibility, in fact, your, your godly responsibility to provide a meal and to provide hospitality, but you immediately realize you don't have the main thing you need to do that, bread. You don't have any bread. There's no 24-hour Publix or Walmart superstore to go to. You can't just run out and get groceries at midnight. No bakeries open. And so you've got a problem. Culturally, see, this is altogether different. You come to my house at midnight and knock on the door, and you need to place this down. I'm going to let you in the house. There probably wouldn't be bread. Maybe there would be. But I'm going to probably offer you a Pop Tart. There's some frosted flakes. We've got, you know, milk in the fridge. I'll cook you breakfast when we get up. That works in our culture. You wouldn't be offended by that necessarily. But in the first century, that did not work, that was not an option that was an insult to do something like that a good feeling generous meal was expected and so there's a a dilemma that, that 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 you're put in in this scenario that Jesus sets up you have two choices you either have to deny this traveler the hospitality that that you're obligated to provide and give him no food or you have to go somewhere and wake up a neighbor to try and borrow the supplies that you need And of course, the best option here clearly is to go wake the neighbor and ask to borrow the bread. So at midnight, you go next door and you go banging on your neighbor's door. Hey, Tim, wake up. I've got a problem and I need your help. I mean, you know you're gonna be waking him up. I mean, you probably wouldn't be waking Tim up at midnight because he and I have texted back and forth at midnight before. But in the first century, you'd be waking somebody up because people typically went to bed shortly after sundown and they typically got up shortly after sunrise and got right off to work so at midnight at this point people have been in bed and have been asleep for a while so you know you're going to be waking up your neighbor and you know that this is going to be an inconvenience but because of your relationship and your friendship you believe that that they'll understand and that they're going to help And so that's what the guy in the fictitious situation does, goes to the next door and begins to knock and notice the approach and the request that he makes for help. He says two things that are important. He says, here's my problem. I need three loaves. I have nothing to set before my guests. I have no way to supply my need. That's what he's saying. I've got company and I, I have nothing. I don't have any means by which to supply this need. And secondly, he says, friend, lend me three loaves. It's his way of saying, I don't have anything that I need to supply this need, but you have everything I need to supply this need. There's a recognition of his own inability to meet the need that's before him, and there's also a recognition of the neighbor's full ability to completely meet the need that's before him. And in fact, he's saying, neighbor, my only hope here, my only hope to meet this demand is that you're gonna come through for me. If you don't help me, I'm lost. I don't have any other resources. I have nowhere else to go. I have nothing else to do. If you don't come through, I'm sunk. You notice that the man doesn't minimize his need. He doesn't pretend like he's got everything under control and he just needs a little assistance. There's a real sense of desperation in this request, isn't there? There's a sense of desperation and a real sense of dependence upon this neighbor to provide for him the things that he can't provide for himself. And, and, and here we're seeing in the story, Jesus gives sort of this first, this, this first characteristic, if you will, of prayer. Prayer is to be a communication between us and God, yes, but it's a communication that is to carry with it a sense of urgency and a sense of complete dependence. When we come to God in prayer, we come to him not as people who have everything under control but just need a little assistance here and there, but we come to him as beggars who have absolutely nothing under control and have absolutely nothing that we need to supply ourselves, and we're coming to him, the one who has everything that we need to supply everything that we could ever need. That is the approach to prayer. It's it's me saying, God, I don't, I don't even know what I need. I don't even know how to express rightly to you what I need, and I know for sure that I can't meet my own needs in a good and healthy and a right way, but I know this, I know that you are good and perfect. I know you have all things, and I know that you know all things, and I know that you can provide everything that I need in any given situation at any moment, and my only hope is that you will provide what I don't have. the sense of urgency, the sense of desperation. When you pray, is there, is there that peace to your prayer life? When you come before God, do you pray as though everything depended on him? Is there any sense of urgency in your prayer life that, that like this man approaching his neighbor, that when you come to God, you realize God has to supply or you got nothing. There should be that sense in our life, in our prayer life, that we're completely dependent upon God, that if he doesn't provide, we're sunk. There's a second piece to this. Our praying should be bold and persistent. I think that's the most obvious piece that comes out of this because as the story Jesus lays out unfolds, he says he'll answer from within, don't bother me, the door is shut and my children are in bed with me. I can't get up and give you anything. Well, that's a great friend, isn't it? I'll note here that the neighbor in the story, in this fictitious story, is meant to be a bit of a caricature of God as we often imagine him. Sort of stingy and cantankerous, distracted by his own desires, reluctant to release the blessings that he obviously can't afford. That is the neighbor in the story. And sometimes we approach God as though that's how he is. And the whole thrust of this passage that we're looking at is meant to indicate to us that, in fact, God is the opposite of those things though we often approach him like he is, like this neighbor. But we get a good look at the neighbor, right? At first knock, he's not positively inclined to help, is he? And he gives a whole list of reasons why he can't help. The door's shut. He can't help you, the door's shut. In those days, the doors were made of wood and iron, they were big, they were bulky, they were noisy. You open the door, it's gonna be a loud and disruptive activity, it's gonna likely wake up everybody in the house. It's like, go away, I don't want to get up and open the door and wake everybody up. Secondly, I can't help you because my children are with me in bed. Now, unless you have a newborn or an infant here, that seems a little odd to you and to me. But in the first century, particularly in poorer families and villages, your whole you lived in a a one-room cottage. Everybody lived in the same room. Often on one end of the cottage would be sort of an elevated area where there would be a sleeping area, and the whole family would all sleep in one area of the room. And it wouldn't be unusual to have animals and livestock and other important creatures in the interior with you. So what he's saying here is this. Listen, you have no idea how long it took to get everybody settled down in this place tonight to get to sleep. For me to get up and go help you... The kids are tucked into bed, the animals are settled down, I'm going to have to get a lamp, I'm going to have to light it, I'm going to have to go walk to the, I'm going to disturb the whole household and everybody's going to be up. Maybe some of our mothers with newborns can understand this a little better, right? When you get that precious little, you know, little baby to sleep and you're exhausted... The last thing you want is somebody knocking on your door or calling your phone. You say ugly things about those people who do such things, right? you got your one hour that you're going to get to sleep before that baby wakes up, and the last thing you want is something to happen that disturbs that moment, right? It's the same idea here. Everybody's asleep. the 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 children are down. The animals are asleep. I don't want to wake everybody up. So he says, I can't get up. I can't get up and get you what you want. I don't want to do all that. Now, the issue here isn't that he can't. The issue is that, he, is that he won't. He doesn't want to. He's reluctant. Friendship isn't enough to get him out of bed. Friendship isn't enough to, to get his help, right? It's like he's saying, I like you, brother, but you've got to come back in the morning, and I'll get you some bread. You're going to have to go find another solution here, midnight. However, it's not enough to get this man to go away from the door, he boldly continues to knock at the door and press his case in desperate need. And it takes a good bit of boldness to refuse to, to take no for an answer, right? Like you knock at the door and the guy says, no, get lost, man. I'm not getting up. We're in bed. We're asleep. The door's shut. I can't help you. Beat it. But he doesn't. He keeps knocking. He keeps knocking. He keeps banging. It's as saying, I know it's late and I know that this is inconvenient, but, uh, and I know that I'm waking everybody up, but I know you have what I need and you can help me, and I'm not going to give up until you, you come through. He's persistent. We're told in verse 8, because, he doesn't do this in, in, because of his friendship, but because of his impudence, he'll rise and give him whatever he needs. We don't use that word impudence a lot. Some. Bible translations translate that word persistence. I like that word a little better. Or if you have a King James Version, it may say importunity, an even less frequently familiar word. But it carries the idea of audacity and shamelessness. In the context here, it's sort of a shameless persistence, a, a refusal to give up. I mean, it's a guy who doesn't care if he wakes everybody in the house. He doesn't care if he wakes the neighborhood up. He keeps on knocking and he keeps on asking until this sleepy man finally relents and gets up out of the bed and comes to the door. And that's precisely what happens in Jesus' story. The neighbor finally realizes, if I don't get up and give this guy his bread, he's going to wake the whole neighborhood up. I'm not going to get any sleep. He's not going away. So he does. Because of his impudence, he'll rise and give him whatever he needs. So what do we make of that? What's the point? Is God like this neighbor? Is that what Jesus is saying? Is he saying that God is like this neighbor? He's kind of cranky and reluctant and he's full of excuses and he's unwilling normally to be bothered by our requests, but if we just badger him to no end, eventually we'll tick him off enough that he'll get up and do what we want him to do? Does he need to be annoyed and cajoled in order for us to get his help? Of course not. The whole rest of the passage makes clear that that's not at all what Jesus is communicating. In fact, it's the opposite. The the point of what he's communicating here is to encourage boldness and to encourage persistence in our prayer. And the point he's trying to make is this, if even the most reluctant neighbor can be persuaded to help us in the middle of the night when we come to him, how much more will God, who loves us perfectly, respond to our prayers? The God who never sleeps and never slumbers, the God who is positively inclined to us at all times—how much more likely is He to help us when we come to Him? Particularly when we come with persistence and boldness. Psalm thirty-four, fifteen: The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and His ears are toward their cry. The point is, God is not like that neighbor at all. The God is completely unlike that neighbor, that he is a God who never sleeps and he's never disturbed by our prayers. He's a God who is, his eyes are inclined toward his people and who has positioned himself already toward responding. Leon Morris writes, We must not play at prayer." but must show persistence if we do not receive the answer immediately. It is not that God is unwilling and must be pressed into answering. The whole context makes it clear that he's eager to give, but if we do not want what we're asking for enough to be persistent, then we do not want it very much at all. He follows that up by saying, and I tell you, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and the door will be open for you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks to the one who knocks, it'll be opened. Ask, seek, knock. All of those things are things that the guy did in the, in the fictitious story, right? He asked for bread. He was seeking help from his friend. He wanted the door to be open to get the bread, all of these things. So Jesus uses the same language, and he says, in your prayer, ask, and it'll be given to you. Seek, you'll find. Keep knocking and the door will be open. All those are in the present tense. They're, they're words that, that signify continuous action. So the idea is you keep on asking, it'll be given. Keep on seeking and eventually you'll find. Keep on knocking and the door is gonna be open to you. What's the point of all that? God answers the prayers of those who come to him boldly and with persistence. Jeremiah twenty you'll seek me and you'll find me. When you seek me with all your heart. Now, the caution here is to overplay the text. This isn't a blank check for, uh, for us to sort of leverage God to, to come through on every whimsical, selfish desire that we have. That isn't the point here. The point isn't that God is the vending machine, and if we persistently come after Him, then He's going to give us every whimsical thing that we desire. There is an assumption underneath this that what we're coming to him with is a genuine need. There's an assumption underneath this that the request is in accordance with his will and it's in accordance with his word. If we come to him apart from those things, then the response is different. James 4 that we looked at a moment ago, verse 2 and 3, you don't have because you don't ask. He follows that up by saying, you ask and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. In other words, you're just, you're just trying to pad your own self. The point here is that we're to come boldly before God in prayer, not timidly. We're to pray persistently, not giving up, knowing that he's good, knowing that he loves us, knowing that he'll always answer us. He'll always answer us when we come to him, when we're asking, seeking, knocking. The answer isn't always what we want it to be, but we always get an answer. God is inclined toward us. He doesn't always say yes to our every desire. Later on in the text, we see him described as a father, and just like a father and a son. A father loves his son, but doesn't give him every desire of his heart. He knows that there are some things that he comes to him asking that are not in his best interest. But God always will respond to those who come seeking, asking, knocking, boldly, persistently. Sometimes God answers yes immediately and provides what we need. Sometimes God says, wait for my perfect timing. His ways are not our ways. His timing isn't always our timing. If you look over to Daniel chapter 10, verse 12, you see an example where Daniel had been praying for three weeks for something. Three weeks, he'd been persistently praying for something. An angel shows up and says, don't be afraid, Daniel, since the first day that you set your mind to gain understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to them. Daniel persisted in prayer, and God answered in a powerful way. God's timing isn't always our timing. Three weeks. For other biblical examples, there's much longer Hannah in the Old Testament, Zechariah and Elizabeth in the New Testament, barren couples, barren people, begging God for children. And it wasn't days or weeks or months, it was years and years and years of prayer. Persistent prayer. And God answered. His timing isn't always our timing. But he works in our waiting. He has a purpose in the waiting, in our persistent praying. As we pray persistently over time, he teaches us patience. He teaches us to trust in his timing. He gives us time to examine our motives. He's using that time to align our will with his will, as we've already mentioned. So the timing that we waste, if you will, maybe we look at it that way, it was wasted. The time that we spend in persistent prayer over and over and over again isn't wasted time at all. God has a purpose for his timing, And his purpose is always right. And sometimes God's answer to us is, no, I have something better, isn't it? Paul prayed multiple times for God to remove a thorn in his flesh, right? And God's answer to him was, no, Paul, I'm not going to do that. But I'll give you something better. I'm gonna give you the grace to deal with that thorn and I'm gonna give you a power that's made perfect only through weakness. What you've asked for is a good thing, but I'm gonna grant you something better, something you didn't even know to ask for, something you didn't even know you wanted. The point is this, when we persist in prayer and we come boldly before the Lord, he inclines his ear to us and he answers his people when they pray. His answer isn't always what we want, but he always answers and he always responds. He commits himself to that. And finally, our praying should be confident in the character of God. This last piece is so, I think, simple and on the surface that we won't spend much time with it. And all God's people said amen because it's 12 o'clock. He simply says, what father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him, instead of a fish, a serpent? Now, you understand that that's an absurd statement, right? The answer to that question is what? What father would do that? Your son comes to you and says, Dad, I'm hungry. Can you give me a fish? No, son, here, have a snake. What father does that? The answer, all God's people said, no father. No father does that, right? What father does that? Or if he asked for an egg, would give him a scorpion. Dad, can you have any eggs? I'm hungry. Here, son, have a scorpion. No father does that. He's shifting the parable from a relational analogy from a neighbor friend to a father's son, right? Right? Sons approach their dad with confidence. They're confident in their father's love and they're confident in their father's desire to bless them and to provide for them. And so when my son comes to me and he has a request, he doesn't come timidly, he doesn't come afraid of me. He comes with an understanding and a whole backdrop that I'm his dad, that I love him, that my desire is to meet his needs and that my desire and my joy comes from blessing him and doing good toward him. And so he comes to me confidently with his requests, right? Because of our father-son relationship. He knows I'm not gonna say yes to everything that he asks for, but he knows that my heart is inclined toward him and that I want to bless him and that I delight to bless him and that I delight to provide for him. And that's the illustration here. What kind of father would give his son a snake for a bread? Nobody would, no father, not even all. And he goes on to say, he goes on to say, if then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children how much more your heavenly father the point is this if you being fallen if you i mean all of us fathers being fallen men who are not purely evil but we all are flawed and imperfect and all god's dads in the room said amen we're all flawed and perfect except for the few just didn't say amen they're perfect we'll all get advice from them later if even us in our imperfection and our fallenness, if, if, if in spite of that we give good things to our kids and are inclined to do good toward them, how much more our heavenly father who is perfect in all his ways is inclined to do good for his children in everything? If human dads, though evil, give good things to their kids, How much more do you think God who's perfect desires to answer and to bless his children? God is not a reluctant old geezer who's stingy with his blessings. He's a loving father who's anxious to do good for his kids. He's not an angry God who's holding a lightning bolt, waiting to zap us at any given moment. He's a gracious Father who understands our weakness as children. He's a patient Father who forgives us time and again and is inclined, in spite of who we are, to bless us and to do good toward us. And so like my son, when he comes to me to ask for something that he needs, I should be able to go before my Father in heaven with the same kind of confidence and the same kind of comfort in his character to know that he's inclined toward me that he's inclined to do good to me, that he desires to bless me, that he finds joy in responding when I come to him. Our praying should be confident in the character of God. You know, this morning you can pray. You can pray with confidence. If you're a Christian and you have access to God the Father, because of your relationship with Jesus Christ, the Son who died for you, before whom you've entrusted your life, if that's you, you can come before the heavenly, your heavenly Father in prayer this morning, whatever your need is, whatever is happening in your life, you can come to him with confidence in His character, that he's not an old geezer who requires you to beg. That he isn't an angry dad who's looking to zap you for every mistake. That he isn't waiting to say, get away from me until you're worthy. But he's a good and loving father who takes joy and delight in receiving you and responding to you when you come to him in prayer. And he delights to bless you. Well, our time is up. But I think those three characteristics are helpful. They're helpful for me. They're a helpful sort of examination for me. Is that what my prayer life looks like? It isn't always what it looks like. That's confession and that's truth. It needs to look more like that this week than it did last week. I need to come before God more regularly with boldness and persistence. I too easily pray for something when I don't get what I want, I just give up. I need to come to God with a greater sense of urgency in my life, recognizing that he is everything and I have nothing, and that if he doesn't come through, then I'm lost. I need to have more confidence in his good and loving and gracious character. So that every time I sin and every time I fall short, I don't feel the need to run and hide. I suspect you probably do the same thing. And I suspect you probably need the same thing. Can we together this morning pray that by the power of the Spirit of God, he would help us this week to spend time with him in prayer, to approach him this way? Let's do that. Lord Jesus, we're amazed by your words. You tell simple stories that are so profound. You explain to us hard truths in simple language that we can understand. In the simple illustration that you gave on this day so long ago, you show us things that we need to see, and you tell us things that we need to hear. And if we're really honest about our own selves before you, these things are convicting. We confess, Lord, that we need your forgiveness for being quite often prayerless people. People who are far more interested in investing in other relationships that really don't matter and far too uninterested in investing in the relationship that matters above all. Forgive us for being people who are so busy that we refuse to take the time to be still and to be quiet to pray. Forgive us for being so self-sufficient to believe that we can handle our lives all on our own, that we really don't need you for most things. That we've got it all under control. When in reality, we are utterly dependent upon you for everything. Lord, I pray for my friends who are in the room who've got a messed up view of who you are and how you relate to them as a father. To those who continually think of you as angry with them, Lord, would you show them this morning that you're a good father who loves them, whose heart is inclined toward them, whose deep desire is to do good for them and to bless them. Father, teach us to pray. We want to know you. We need to know you. Not just about you, but to know you. Lord, blow through all of our excuses, all of our foolishness, and drive us this day and this week to our knees for your great and glorious and your everything to us. Lord, for those in the room who who don't have access to their Heavenly Father because they've never confessed their sin and submitted their lives to Jesus, the Son, as Lord and Savior. I pray that right now they would realize that they are on their own, that their only hope is to begin prayer there, confessing their sin, receiving you, Lord Jesus, as their Lord and Savior. Draw them by your Spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.